How will next year's new rules affect the guys who build the projections? I'll ask Todd Zola, Ray Murphy, and the master, the bearded one, the bearded master, Ron Chandler, all coming up next on a special First Pitch Arizona edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. Well, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here with uh, Ron Chandler, Ray Murphy, and Todd Zola. We're going to come to you live with an audience from First Pitch Arizona. Well, mostly live, as you can tell. <laughs> Some of them are a little droopy, shall we say, after a couple of days of baseball out here. And guys, I'd like to start off by asking, uh, how do you think First Pitch Arizona is going so far, Ron? You've been to all of them pretty much. Uh, how does this one compare? That's right. I, I guess I'm the only one who's been here to every single one of them. We, we started First Pitch back in uh, 1994. Um and it's just amazing how, how big this has grown over the years. It's, it's now this huge, in, huge industry event, and uh, we've got close to 200 people here. It's particularly gratifying this year after having gone through COVID and missing a year. Last year was our first year back and was kind of a, a low turnout. But uh, this year, the turnout is, is really pumping back up to close to where we used to be before the, uh, uh, the shutdown. So, yeah, it's been great. Ray, you're running the show this year along with your partner, uh, Brent Hershey of BaseballHQ.com, your co-general managers and co-runners of the uh, of the event. How has it been going from a behind-the-scenes perspective and uh, and keeping everything on track? It's, it's a very busy schedule that you have to manage. It is busy, and usually when people through the course of the weekend ask me how it's going, I just turn the question around and ask them, but that doesn't really work well in podcast format, right? No. <laughs> so to actually answer the question, it seems like it's going pretty well. Uh, we haven't gotten too many curveballs while we've been on site this week. You know, there were a whole bunch of them scheduling, you know, coordination vendors, all of the logistics kind of are a lot of work and require, you know, a bunch of flexibility to get everything lined up before we get here. But this has been on the ground here. It's been a very good event from the perspective of running around personally and being able to mostly enjoy myself rather than, you know, putting out the next fire. So I feel good about that. And to echo Ron, it's nice to have a, you know, a very comfortable crowd level for us back, you know, last year. I think everybody was just glad to be here, the ones who came, but it was definitely a little bit more of a, you know, subdued or muted event. But the uh, the, the vibe is back in full swing here, and uh, it's great to see. It is great to see. And Todd, you're a, an attendee as well as a presenter. What have you seen so far at First Pitch Arizona that uh, you'd like to say has well, been to really be honest, good? The only complaint I've heard is whoever was in charge of the weather. But I don't know what they're tying. I'm not cold. I don't, you know, maybe a little more padding than everybody else. But, no, nah, I, I, it's, it's been great. And you, you, I, I didn't mind the vibe last year. The smile, you know, every, you know uh, we have a lot of new, as you guys know, there's kind of a, a new, both industry-wise and just regular attendee-wise, attendee-wise, uh, 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 yeah, attendee. It just sounded like I was making up a word. No, attendee's the right word. Um, a nice little wave of new young younger people coming in, which is uh, nice to see since I'm beginning to join the older people leaving crowd. Uh, maybe not leaving just yet. So uh, I was going to say, please don't wait. Not leaving just yet. At least yet. wait till the end of the pod. Not leaving. I get a, I get an XFL draft and I get to play through that. Um, I wouldn't leave any. Wouldn't want to leave anybody else with my keepers. But the um, 
I love it. I, I love the fact that the industry's in a great place. First pitch is a big part of that, and um, always happy to be invited to you know speak, attend it. You know, as I you know, sometimes if everybody says. I'll just do whatever you want. You probably get frustrated. You want some people to say, I want to do this. But I keep telling them, just do, put me wherever you want. And this is where they put me. A big part of First Pitch Arizona every year is attending games at the Arizona Fall League, which is a showcase for Major League Baseball's higher-level prospects. Not all of them, certainly, but we have a really good complement of pretty well-regarded prospects whom we get to see. We go to the ballpark. Uh, I'll start with Ray. Have you seen anything so far out at the ballpark that has caught your eye, player-wise or rules-wise or otherwise? Well, even though I said I generally get to enjoy myself once we get on the ground here, that's really the one trade-off I make is sometimes I don't make the games and you know do a little behind-the-scenes work while people are off-site. I did get over to Scottsdale last night and watch that game. Uh, you know, From the Red Sox perspective, I got my first look at Nick York, and he had like three hits and two outstanding defensive plays. So you know, I had heard some you know, sort of muted or mixed reports on Nick York. But in my sample size of one game, he looks like future Hall of Famer Nick York. So I'm, <laughs> right, yeah. I'm super excited. There goes your first draft pick. Next, exactly. Next draft. Give yeah. me all the Nick York. <laughs> Todd, what have, you, have you seen uh, games and what have you seen? Well, here's where it is. I love going to the games. I, in fact, when we found out this weekend that there weren't going to be, you know, home run derby and fall stars, I re- re- rescheduled my flight to come out a day earlier to be able to see a couple of games on Wednesday. Um, but if you ask me who I remembered, what I saw, I have no, I know that's what, that's what Rob Gordon's for. That's what, uh, Shelley's for. That's what my, you know, James Anderson Rotowire's for. They, they, you know, they tell me what I should have seen. I just enjoy watching the game. Uh, so, you know, I, I was curious, you know, about the pitch clock cause we're going to, you, know, you know, at least get a little eye on that. And, um, there's the, 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 the shift legislation is in place. You know, I was just kind of curious, you know, watching some of that stuff, but, um, as far as players goes, plus I kind of back in the day um, when you know Gooky Dawkins is the ones my friends still uh, you know hound me for. Um, you know I get too married to a guy that gets a nice hit, so I just enjoy the games and go back afterwards. They can't all be Albert Pujols. Oh man! Uh, one of the first years here, we were all old Gaga over Brooks Kieschnick. He's mm. a Hall of Famer now, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yes, in the Waukesha High School. Yeah. <laughs> Waukesha High Hall of Fame and broom closet. Have you been out to games, Ron? I, embarrassingly, no, I haven't. Um, mostly because um, when I came out here expecting first pitch Arizona, it turned out to be first pitch Minnesota. And this uh, thin Florida blood just does not do real well in 50-degree temps with 15-mile-an-hour uh, winds. So, uh yeah, um, I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't been to the games, but I'm planning to go to the Home Run Derby tonight because uh, that should be a lot of fun. I flew in from Toronto on Thursday and went, and went straight to the game, and it was literally 30 degrees warmer in Toronto, I think, than it was when I got to Phoenix, Arizona, and I had to unpack like sweatpants and a jacket from my suitcase that I had going on. But it was sure a lot of fun, and, and of course, you get to meet people that you come and see these these games all the time, but uh, just talking briefly about the the game that was held on Friday night. It was a very weird baseball game. There was a lot of weird things that went on. There was a a triple that was actually a can of corn that the guy just dropped, and they gave him a a triple on the play. But there was also one player got hit twice, including a, a 
hit in the head, and it sounded like a rifle shot. That's how loud it was. I was surprised he got up. I, I really was. And then he, his next at bat, he got uh, hit again, and we're all laughing at that. And then the most unusual thing of all was the catcher lobbing the ball back to the pitcher on one of the teams. Instead of throwing it back, he would shuffle up to the front of the plate, and then he'd lob a big sort of arcing softball pitch type of thing. Yeah, and uh, we were all, what, what, this, what, what is this guy doing? Sore arm, you know, but he seemed to be able to fire the ball. He certainly could throw it into center field on yeah, the— he, uh, <laughs> he demonstrated that with some regularity, both, like the, both between innings and during the game. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> the old Trevor Bauer, I want to see if I can get it out over center field. It was. They actually started putting a player behind for the uh, after the after the warmups. They put a player out behind second base because they kind of figured he was probably going to throw one out there, and indeed he did. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I I, if I was an umpire, I wouldn't have been within ten feet of that that whole thing. But then somebody at uh, one of those sessions this morning at, at the first pitch conference itself said that they thought, and I, this seems to be a really good explanation, that they thought. He was buying time for the pitcher because of the pitch clock. And the pitchers want to have a few extra seconds, especially because they're, they tend to be throwing a few innings here at very high effort levels, and you want to get a, a bit of rest between the reps. And I think somebody told this guy, just walk out in front of the plate, lob it over so this guy gets himself three or four extra seconds. And I think that's the most valid explanation. Ray, what did you think? We were talking about it at the game last night, and that was the theory I the first thing that came to mind for me was that he was stalling for the additional, you know, two seconds to stand up and, you know, do the arcing throw back. We were debating whether it was really that or whether he's, you know, got the Mackie Sasser yips or something that, you know, he can't actually throw the ball back to the pitcher regularly. I, I still don't know the answer. But then, yeah, on the panel today, uh, we were talking about uh, the pitch clock and Andy Andres brought up, who was at the game last night, working the pitch clock. He's actually being trained to... Uh, work the pitch clock at Fenway Park next year, so he's actually you know out here developing the AFL just like the prospects, right? But he um, he said that he had the same theory that the guy was uh, you know gaming the pitch clock because the pitch clock from his training because he's actually being trained starts when the pitcher catches the ball the throw back from the catcher. So that catcher taking you know three and a half seconds to get the ball back to the pitcher is essentially free time. I wasn't watching it close enough. Um, was he doing it with men on base? Yeah, that's setting he up was. for a delayed steal. Yes, at least from second. You know that, that's that's weird. That's, major leagues will take advantage of that. Yes, and you know I'm not sure they need to do the delayed steal because going back to the fact that his throws, you know, with velocity on them, were going all over the place. And, you know, stealing was already a high percentage well, option. Well, may, other catchers may adapt, or the managers may adapt the same principle. Yeah, in the majors, though, you can't do it men on base. They'll get you with the. If you guys know what delayed, I assume in this room you know what a delayed steal is. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I mean, I could pull. I was the king of the. This was the king of the delayed steal in Framingham Little League, so I know it. I know it very well. Well, talking about the uh, the pitch clock, of course, we've a lot of us have been talking for weeks now about the rule changes that Major League Baseball has announced for uh, next year and how they affect those rules changes, how they affect uh, the way we're going to plan our rosters, the way we're going to figure out what we want. Is there going to be more steals? Does that make steals more or less valuable? Does that make a high steals guy more or less valuable? All of these questions. But we have at our uh, at our table here three of the best baseball projectors in the business, and I would like to talk about the rules changes from the point of view of what additional difficulty they create for you guys when you're thinking ahead to when you start formulating your projections. And Todd, I'll start with you. Do you foresee any of these rules 
causing you any amount of heartburn as you try to figure out how to manage the rules changes into the projections process? Heartburn, I don't know. Uh, but brain burn, maybe. Yeah, I mean, we're having a panel on it tomorrow uh, to discuss all these things in detail. Um, yeah, but as, when I'm, as someone who does these projections too, I'm, and I've been asking some people, I'm like, what, what do you want from me? Like, do you want me to make my best guess as to what's going to happen? Or do you want me to just play her down the middle like normal, and then you can make a guess? So, it, you know, some people will buy the projections. I talked to Ray about this the day before their draft, use them, and then never sign on the site again. They want us to tell them exactly what's going to happen. There are some more, you know, it doesn't even have to be NFPC. It's just more, you know, more advanced players. You know what? You know, you know I, if I know you did nothing, I can then apply what I think. And if I, if I don't know what you did, I may be double applying it. So there's some people, but um, yeah, there's not, in part of getting the stuff out so early, uh, I need to do some studies. I need to do some studies on the, on the balance divisions, on the balance schedule, on, on, uh, uh, shifting if, if I feel those players uh, pitch clock and, and stealing bases and there's not time to do these studies by November 1st you gotta you know you gotta get them out for the forecaster even earlier so I think um, it's still a, quite, I mean I think it depends on what I find out and maybe even my panel tomorrow the guys that are on there thank you guys for putting such smart people on my panel uh, to tell me what I need to do uh, so I you know I, as I, I got my first set out I was like subject to change my gut my gut says, uh, you know, stop eating so much. But my gut says, um, I think the balanced schedule may end up being the most influential. And even that, it, it still matters who you, you know, so I have one less start in Colorado. Maybe you do, you know, you don't know. You don't know where it lines up. It's still a guess. Um, I have a feeling we're going to find out that, that the shift isn't going to be of a big of a deal as we thought it was. And Andy this morning, Andy Andrews, you were talking about Andy, was telling us that the pitch clock isn't going to be as big of a deal as we thought it was. So now that brings us to the stolen bases, and that's don't know. Ray, well, what about your uh, projector's eye to the future, given the rules changes? Let me give you my answer, which I think is going to tee up Ron for uh, to give his take. But I feel like the individual components of it, I've got at least the beginnings of a strategy of how I can address each rules change. For the shift... I can, you know, we, we, any, any of us can go to the StackCast data and get the leading num the numbers of the people who got shifted the most last year who are likely to benefit from this, right? I could also make a global adjustment to, like, most are all left-hand batters and, you know, bump up a batting average by a, by a constant factor or do something that, you know, integrates the speed component. There, there are ways of solving that problem, right? And then similarly for the... Um, Divisions. divisions yeah, thank you, you. Um, yeah you could do those like we you know, we I, I whipped up a model during the pandemic I made, made a change to our projections so that we could handle the sort of you know closed bubbles that like you, that whole 60 game season was east versus east central versus central west versus west and I had bent and spindled our old projection system to be able to account for that I've still got that laying around and I could use that to as a jumping off point to balance out the schedule to try to put like a proper weighting of um who's who's playing who the most however and teeing up ron the part that i can't account for is all of these things taking place at the same time 
and there are combinatorial elements and, you know, things drafting off of other things and things getting fed more fuel by, you know, there's the shift impact, the launch angle impact, the stolen bases. Anybody who comes to me and tells me they want me to capture that, I'm like, look, here's your $89 back. Sorry, just (laughs) not happening. Ron, what do you think about these rules changes? Well, yeah, I mean, the problem is we can do an analysis and identify groups of the most likely candidates to be affected by some of them. And uh, in the introduction to the forecast of this year, I have a chart that looks at the players who were shifted against the most last year and those with the highest contact rates. You would think those the highest contact hitters who are not going to be shut down by the shift might see an increase in batting average. So I can identify those players, whether or not that'll actually happen. It's hard to say. Similarly, um, we can look at all the base dealers and those who uh, perhaps had a success rate of uh, 75% might be bumped up to 80% or 85%. We can identify those guys. Will they steal more bases? We don't know. So it's, it's a matter of identifying likely candidates and then speculating as to whether or not they might improve or not imp- or, or fall back. But as, as Ray mentioned, I think the, the biggest part of this is that You know, when you're doing a research study, you like to have a control group and a test group. And when you have a single variable to test, then it's easy to figure out exactly what happened. But now we've got multiple variables that are being tested at the same time. So if batting averages across the across the 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 entire player pool spike, we can't figure out exactly why that happened. Was it because of the shift? Was it because a pitcher's timing was thrown off because of the clock? Was it because uh, with uh, runners on base uh, threatening to steal more often the, the batters? I mean, it, there were just so many different things going on at the same time. It's hard to parse out individual elements and, and figure out, well, what really was the determining factor here? What drove these changes? And I think that's what has really uh, created more of a, a, a prognosticator's nightmare for us here. And that's, that's kind of where I'm on this. Is. A lot of baseball performance, however, is a result of multiple factors. And you've always had to deal with that. You know, even pre-rules change, you're looking at a guy and you're trying to assess, well, what do I think his batting average is likely to be? It's partly playing time. How many at-bats is he going to have? How many? How much is he going to put the ball into play? How hard is he going to put the ball into play? Are the fielders any good in his division? Are most of the are the parks different in some way? There's always been all these combinatorial, to use your excellent term for it, Ray. These things factor together, and you have to start multiplying them together. And it does get to be quite a quite a. It seems to me to move it away from science more towards art. Totally. And and the the infuriating part of it, and I say infuriating from the both the, prog- the projection proprietor perspective and also the Rob Manfred can, you know, go jump in a, jump in a river perspective. Um, but from both perspectives, you know, over the last couple of years, they did this testing in the minors. You know, we're going to test bigger bases in the Southern League. We're going to, you know, have no throws to first in this league. We're going to do no shift in this league, half season of this, and then we're going to switch, switch and test, you know, theory B in the second half of the season. And... I mean, that was seemingly the right way to do this. And Patrick, I know you and I have talked before about um, some of the interviews that Theo Epstein gave over the last couple of years when he was the 
guy who was like organizing all this stuff. And you could tell, to your point, there was process behind this and there it was more science than art. But apparently now that we've tested all these things individually, Rob Manfred is like, nope, time to make gumbo, throw it all in. <laughs> you know, it's it literally what we're getting. And it, it makes the two years of structured methodical testing completely pointless because it would have been more valuable to test the gumbo with the miners and find out how, how, how it was gonna taste. We're not gonna know how it tastes until April. Yeah, and to your point, Patrick, we have a history with all these other interrelated variables in the past that we can draw upon and, and figure out what affects what affects what. But this being completely new now, uh, we're, we're basically going to muddle through 2023 until we have a, a data set which will represent a sample of one. And yeah. then from that sample of one, we're going to have to project 2024. And then we'll have a sample of two. And then from there, suddenly start building up the the pool of, of, of data to figure out exactly what the heck's going on. That sample of one makes a huge assumption that the ball was the same as the previous year. <laughs> there you go, right. another variable. <laughs> you know, which, which, but so we're actually going through the whole thing now as far as trying to figure out one of the last seminars we just saw was uh, they gave some humidor information, home run for fly ball information. And, you know, people, well, what's the number? It has to do with the humidors. Well, no. Um, the weather this year was wackier than it, the, the weather patterns were different as far as a really warm May and it cooled down and that was a little bit different. Uh, part of that same panel showed us that pitchers are gradually gaining their spin back. So the, it's, it wasn't just the humidors. So, but yet people that are, if you're, if humidor is your agenda, it was the humidors that lowered the home run per fly ball. The other aspect they didn't bring this in was the proliferance of the minor leaguers. There was a log jam from 2020, a bunch of really good minor leaguers came in. And so that, you know, the, that's, uh, the, the sample was different, of, you know, the, of, the, of the players performing the, giving the production was a different sample with all the youngsters this year. Do we drain the crowd? You know, do we drain the inventory? Even, or there's, there's a, every year now we're going to get an influx of, of earlier and better minor leaguers. So, um, I, you know, I just – and the other thing that the, I think the panel missed, they were talking about hitters. Um, as far as the home run for fly ball and trying to figure it out for next year, I, it, it's the home run environment for pitching means more than anything. I don't care who you're know, draft hitting earlier because of the home run for fly ball. The home run rate of the pitchers is huge. That's why that's why Martin Perez wasn't all luck this past year. He, he, there was some luck in there, but he kept the ball in the yard, and that made the lower strikeout rate play a little better. Tell me the you know. You, if uh, you, they can tell you about the shift, if they tell me what the home run environment is going to be, I'm happy. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think they can tell you. Yeah, well, that little he kept it in a bigger yard me. too, and that's another change. And that happens year in year out in Baltimore this year. Like they just shove the left field fence thirty feet out, and all of a sudden, all you guys well, have to go. Well, now what does that mean for home for fly balls? The only one I've heard, and maybe you guys have heard, is City Field is bringing in right field a few feet. And it's for an improved fan experience. Is Aaron Judge hitting opposite field home runs an improved fan experience? I it is I if wonder, he's playing for the I Mets. I wonder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I wonder. That's the only one I've heard so far. Um, Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds me, though, of the false advertising you get because uh, you quickly – I moved my seats at Fenway. I have a partial season ticket plan in this um, – in right, right before the – at the end of the 2019 season, I moved to the third row in like the right field corner, like right around the, the pesky pole there. And that my ticket rep who sold me was like, yeah, you're going to be looking at the back of Mookie Betts' head for the next 10 years. <laughs> I never saw the back of Mookie Betts' head. 
I still want a refund. Uh, well, we we discussed how there's uh, an increasing amount of art in uncertain times versus science in when you build these projections. But I think we could safely say that there's always been an element of art in it because you guys, none of you has ever relied solely on the algorithm. The black box spits out numbers, but the last part of the process has been an individual person going through them and say, that doesn't make sense to me and making some kind of adjustment and making some countervailing adjustment somewhere else. And what I wonder is how do you decide, Ron, when and where to make a tweak to a projection that came out of your otherwise seemingly trustworthy algorithm or set of algorithms. Yeah, well, I don't completely trust the algorithm. We have, we have an old saying at the Baseball HQ, the uh, the Cheryl Teagues rule, never get married to the model. Um, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a starting. I was going to say, we gotta, <laughs> that's got to be updated for Gisela. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, old school here. Um, yeah, it's, uh, f from my perspective, the model is a starting point. It's just really, it's the springboard from which you uh, take a look at, you know, a first set of results, and then you, you dip into your, your trove of research that you've done over the last, you know, two, three decades and seeing, well, according to the model, he should hit around 35 home runs, but his, uh, his fly ball rate was down last year, his hard hit rate was down. Um, there are some several elements of, of his skill set that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And the model, for whatever reason, is not taking them into account. So, uh, well, yeah. It well, it can't, right? Because it doesn't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, so you, you make a manual adjustment and you, you take a look at other uh, players of similar ilk and you, God, I used ilk, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you drop them a few home runs. You, you do 32, you do 31, 28 in, in instances. You know, uh, you know, we see the difference between a, a projection of 35 and 33 is, you know, two gusts of wind. So it's, it's, it's really all in the same ballpark and every player performs in a certain range of statistical outcomes. So... I don't get hung up too much on the actual numbers themselves, just the, the range of skill. And the model, again, it just, it's just a starting point. And from there, we, uh, we use uh, different uh, width paintbrushes. Ray, you've, you do tweaking as part of the process at BaseballHQ.com. All you guys do. This is a, not a secret. Uh, I don't know if Ariel does it with uh, his, but I believe he does. And how do you decide when and where and who gets a, gets a tweak and, and who gets the algorithm straight up? Yeah, for me, it's really breaking the projected data set into a couple of tiers that have like different levels of confidence in them, right? We start, like if you look at how I create the projections that show up on Baseball HQ in mid-December, putting aside the book for a second, um, I start with the book projections. You know, in the course of writing the forecaster now, we've got, you know, 124 pages times seven players a page, you know, roughly 900 players that were getting the whole player box treatment in the book, and each one of those spit out a projection. Those projections have been looked at by like six people in the process, right? There's a writer, there's two levels of editors that come that come to Brent, to me, to Ron for the before deciding, like Ron is the one who actually decides what goes in ink, right? So because those projections 
have been, for those 900 players, have been through six levels of review. I'm usually pretty judicious about whether I'm going to touch those. I, I will do it, but, you know, certainly we'll touch them. Players change teams, we'll run the park factor algorithm. You know, inevitably over the course of the winter, you hear about hidden injuries and that sort of thing that weren't known information at the time we wrote the, we, we wrote the commentary in the book. So I'll, I'll make some changes then. Um, but I'm not just randomly deciding on some Tuesday in February that, you know, 27 home runs for this guy looks wrong. We're going to make it 29 because, you know, six people sort of decided on 27. And I think of think enough of my opinion in that soup to to override it without some kind of cause. However, we project a heck of a lot more than 900 players by the time the, the season starts. We're you know, probably up in the neighborhood of, I would guess, 1,300, 1,400. And for the rest of those, we start with just a base major league equivalency of where they're mostly guys who played in the minor leagues last year or, um, you know, middle reliever types who throw 40 innings and don't make the cut to be get a player box in the forecaster. So for those, because don't ha- those don't have the six levels of review, I will quickly touch those if I need to. Usually if they're projected for 40 innings or 80 at-bats or whatever, I don't care if the performance is out of line. You know, if a guy's going to hit 300, 400, 500 in 80 at-bats versus 200, 300, 400, you know, whatever. Um, but however, inevitably what happens is there is a pool of players who, within that wider reviewed universe, who now are projected for much larger roles. And then if the MLE projection was out of line to the good or bad, it pretty quickly gets noticed by our subscribers. And that's when I've got to go in and, you know, basically do my own version of the six review process that uh, that, that led to the level of rigor in a forecaster projection because it didn't get that kind of attention in the fall, and you know, and we're playing a little bit of catch up there. But the yeah, you know, the number of players that that applies to is probably a couple of dozen each March. It's the the guys who pop up in the first week of spring training and you know hit four home runs and suddenly everyone's super excited and oh he might actually win the second base job in Cleveland and inevitably what happens is he gets bumped up to 400 at bats and the projections his projection looks really wacky I go clean it up to something more reasonable and then by the end of March he's back to 80 at bats because you know he was a flash in the pan. <laughs> Todd how about your process? So this all started from a podcast last night Ryan Broomfield a um, HQ writer uh, he has his bloom boards on Twitter and he comes right up in front. He says, "This, it's a way. It's a way to get a list of names to talk about, to generate discussion, to do more research on. Not, you know, not necessarily. You know, but, but sometimes they're what we what we see is so interesting. And Ray, man, you know, it's like I'm so tempted to change based on, you know, damn it, Ryan, why'd you do that to me? Um, but in general, we have a whole lot of more of that. Not just from Ryan, we have more of that type information out there now." So it it, it you, we get that tease that many more times, and so uh, it, 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 before we, you didn't make the move changes because we didn't have anything to base it. We didn't we didn't know that the home run for fly or average exit velocity and fly balls was dropping or whatever. Uh, so there's a but the other hand that that also gives us more reasons to make a change to to back it up. So with my general process. Um, I will with with all the expected stats. I know you guys. You I don't know how you use them, but you you got, I assume it's something similar. You get expected stats. So right there, that gives you kind of a, a regression lever. Let's call it. You we, what's expected, what is projected, how much you know, what's the weighted average of those two things. So if I'm changing a projection, what I'm actually doing is I figure there's 50% regression. He he owns 50. He owns what he the thing, and then 50% is is luck. Um, you know, if I feel this guy was more 
you know, more skill than luck, I can change the regression towards what he did. And in my mind, I'm changing regression. I'm not changing the projection. I'm changing my level of regression. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, instilling. And I think it's actually true that way. Uh, you know, so I, I does my studies. I think I know what H should regress to because what it has usually regressed to. And but again, there's players that some, you know, Ryan will point out that this guy's, um, you know, exit velocity on fly balls dropped in the, in the last two months of the season. So maybe I need to put more towards the expected. Because maybe that is real. Have to make that. So we are making some subjective decisions. And Ray kind of alluded to the other one, uh, the biggie. Emily's are better than nothing. Kind but, of. You know? <laughs> but sometimes I wonder if nothing's better. Um, there's, especially now, because we're still dealing with the 2020 no season bias. And um, I mean, we're Boston fans, so we, you know, whatever. But, you know, Duran Duran, one reason why he looks so great is because he had gotten some stuff on the. I'll, every time I say alternative training site, I think it's the last time I'll have to say it, but then I have to say it again or write it again. But some of these minor leaguers got more work than others on the alternative training site, so they were a little more advanced. Now they're going back to playing against major leaguers that were off for a whole year, so they're going to look a lot better. Uh, and we're now seeing we're still it's still still fleshing itself through the whole age versus level may not be exactly whatever algorithm we use for MLEs for age versus level when you were off a year. So I'm much more uh, likely, as Ray said, to go over the minor leaguers and, uh, man, you know, that's just too good. He's no, you know, and I am now, you know, there's not a whole lot of science and like Corbin Carroll is just not going to, you know, steal 40 bases. What number, uh, 27, you know, there's no, you know, there's no method to that other than, 20 I mean yeah he could steal 27 you know so uh but that that's the big thing and I would you know I like this this is the first time the NFPC has had an ADP now I don't compare oh no I'm, I'm much higher on this than that guy but now I have a list of players to project that they're being drafted <laughs> they're being drafted now I may not you know guy in double a and these or triple single a and you know I, Ray and I we don't think this guy's going to play in the majors but for our business, if the ADP, if the NFPC, if, if, if people are, and I know not just NFPC people that buy our stuff, but if they're being drafted, you know, it's, you know, pre preempt the note on the forum. How come you don't have this guy? Yeah. So, and, and it's and it's one thing to not have a projection for the player. If you have the projection, it's a different conversation to say like, well, why are you only projecting him for eighty at bats? I think he's going to be the starting yeah. second base. We don't project him because he hasn't had a game above single A and MLEs are only really tested for double A and above. So now we're actually, you know, we're making, you know, we're making up an MLE that hasn't been proven, but for our business, we it'd like, it's good to get the guy out there. So, cause they'll wait, you know, buy HQ because they're projecting everybody that's being drafted or whatever. And so it's, it's kind I, of, I a, can tell you right now, we're already going to get an email the day we released the forecaster PDF of how did you not give Matt Mervis the, a, a, a box of the forecaster? Yeah. Matt Merv- Mervis was not a thing in the last <laughs> week of September. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, well, you, you get Frank Schwindel, but no, anyway. uh, <laughs> but no, so that's, you know, there, I think, you mentioned Ariel. I hope he doesn't. I mean, not because he's taking a conglomeration of five people who did the tweaks. At least, hopefully, right. did the tweaks. So then, further tweak. You know, but I, I don't know. But um, I don't. I don't think, think he does either. I don't think. He, I think he, he. I think that's the idea of it because he's yeah, and he's tested. You know, which how to weight each one. Um, but I. What he, you know what he does do, and maybe this is what you're thinking of. Um, 
we're talking about Eric Cohen's ATC, who takes a weighted average of uh, some of the systems out there. And uh, sometimes in March, everybody doesn't update at the same time, and there'll be a major injury or some news that'll skew one of the sets that he uses. So he may man- massage that one to make it more realistic to, to go with the other three or four. So that that he does. I don't think he puts his own. Once he, you know, I don't think he'll change uh, one that you know it is what it is based upon his algorithms for most of them. But one of the big changes over the my lifetime in playing and being involved in fantasy baseball as a business is it used to be in my, in my mind anyway that the projections were looked upon as being really well and trumpeted by their pro- producers as being quite accurate that was the big arguing point and gradually over time and Ron you really took a leading role in this the reality of it is they are projections that have ranges of outcomes that has a number more or less at the middle of what the that range might be and that we really need to embrace the imprecision and it seems like if you're tweaking a guy from 29 home runs to 28 you're it's not that big of a change, really, because it's it's well it's well it was well within the range of likely outcomes anyway. It's only if you change a guy from thirty five home runs to twenty four because of something that that's happened that you're really making a significant difference in the quality of the or in the in the uh, interest of the projection that you're making. And I, I wonder if at some point it's just worth your while to just say that this is close enough. I'm not going to tweak it unless there's something really significant that I need to change because I'm not I'm not changing 21 home runs to 20 home runs. It's a waste of everybody's time. Ray, I, I was just thinking as you were reciting that that I'm, I'm going to trigger Ron by saying this, but isn't it funny how um, I think you told the story in your book when I was reading it this summer uh, of Prospectus and Nate Silver back in the day with their laser-accurate projections and your um, corollary to that was, you know, all projections are, you know, inherently inaccurate, random gusts of wind, et cetera. Nate Silver now in the political world has embraced imprecision exactly in the way that you talked about it 20 years ago and that we have a wide range of outcomes in the polling average, et cetera. And it's almost like he took your essay on projection and accuracy and, and just replaced baseball with politics. Yeah. I mean, going back, I mean, it's we started doing projections in this industry back in the late 1980s and there were periods of time where the marketplace just demanded accuracy with their projections there was an expectation and so a lot of the writers at the time just fed into that and so they started trumpeting how their projections were the most accurate in the universe where i kept just looking at it and and i would be comparing the projections of all these analysts on all these players and i'd say we, ha- we don't even remotely have any access to Nostradamus out there. We, we really ha- are clueless when it comes to being able to project the future. But, you know, you'd always see a message on, on a message board somewhere saying, so uh, what writer has the most accurate projections? And so, you know, a John Benson or, or, or Nate Silver or someone would, would start trumpeting the fact that theirs was the best. Well, uh, in 2004, 2005, I think, Nate wrote this whole article and basically went on record as saying that the baseball prospectus had the best projections of all the systems. And, you know, my business was based upon some perception that projections, if not accurate, were still useful. And so I went to this rampage about how accurate projections are a crock. And it's not about accuracy, it's about winning. And so it's, it's a matter of, of, of finding a way to win with the numbers that you have because you're not going to be able to project with anything close to 
70% accuracy, 80% accuracy, whatever the expectation is. And um, yeah, it's, it's always a battle. It's always a battle. You know, you, you go out there and you show, oh, I was great projecting. Uh, I, I projected that uh, Mark McGuire was going to beat the home run record in, in uh, 1998. Um, but that doesn't mean I had the best overall projections of the entire pool. So it's, it's that type of thing you have to kind of pick and choose and provide some sort of perspective on what the whole forecasting process is about. And it's, it's hard because there is that expectation that I want to know exactly what each player is going to do so I can assemble the best, the best roster I can. And, and if I could just make one more quick point. Sure. During the pandemic, we ran some um, retro drafts where basically we, uh, we had drafts of seasons that were already done. And we already knew what the players were actually going to do. We, had, we didn't have projections. We had actuals. And I found out that even with the actual numbers of each of these players' performances, I had trouble competing against 11 other guys and assembling the best team of statistics roster construction is a skill and i think that's a far more valuable skill to have than having the most accurate projections uh, uh, available so um, i mean to become the best fantasy leaguers out there i think we have to hone our, our roster construction skills yeah there's definitely a bunch of skills that lead to winning more than having the right numbers because uh, lots of people have anecdotes about this but i was thinking when you were talking about that that there, there's a kind of a dichotomy here that even people like you who, who, who are arguing that there's no such thing as accuracy and projection, you're almost forced to go into the marketplace and say, we got Mark McGuire right to within, you know, four RBIs or whatever, and you put it on the, in your ad in USA Today or whatever. And then the other part of it that I always thought was funny was you'd see this, a website or a story somewhere, and it would say, Joe's Baseball projection systems wins most accurate award, and then you read the story. And guess who designed the measurement system? That would be yeah. Joe. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a. I, I have a funny anecdote about that. Actually, it dates back to must be eight or nine years ago, around the time that we were Brent and I were transitioning to take it over the site from Ron. You'll remember there was Ron. There was a uh, there was a website out there that maybe they still do it. I don't know that used to. To let everyone submit their projections and they would, you know, even at the individual writer level mm -hmm. and they would assess at the end of the season who had the most accurate projections. And you had put in a explicit baseball HQ shall not participate in this. You know, our writers shall not participate in this, right? Um, and then one, one of the first years after we transitioned to running a website from you, one of our writers actually won that competition. And I was like, um, Hey, writer, um, you know, we had never relaxed that policy that nobody was supposed to be in this. What the hell happened? I'm glad you won, but, you know, we don't do this, right? <laughs> and he quickly gets back to me and says, boy, you know, funny, I don't know what happened. Like, I remember visiting that website one day, and I created an account, and I looked at it for five minutes. I swear I moved one player from the default rankings, but it was somebody who had, like, a breakout year. He's like, he took, like, you know, Fernando Tatis from the bottom, moved him to the top. It was the only change to the default rankings he made, but he made one very good change to the rankings, logged out after five minutes, and won the damn competition for the whole year. <laughs> so goes to show you how you, you know, again, whether it's Joe's roadside projection system who designs the rules for the system, or even if there's some quasi-reputed independent way of measuring it, it's always going to be gamed. It's never going to be foolproof. And trying to claim victory on there is just, you know, 
pushing water upstream. My company has the same rule as your company, but my company's me. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't. This past year, friend Jeff Zimmerman was doing studies. First time I ever said yes. One of the main reason being, you kind of alluded to it. I have not found a system out there that I believe truly judges projections. I, I, is it the playing time? Is it, you know luck? So I don't. If I don't, I don't think there's a system that can truly do what it's what it's saying it's going to do. It's the agenda. You know, the system designed for Joe to win. Uh, that's kind of the first thing. The or other, they tested twenty times, find the one that Joe does yeah, win. Exactly. Yeah. Now they declare that is the algorithm. Yeah. Um, you know, Ariel, you mentioned before, r- routinely wins these things, but we know that's because when you combine averages, you get a you know, better chance. It's You're the always, wisdom of the bigger crowd. Right. Yeah. It's always my conundrum is, you know, I know I should average mine with HQ, with Roto-I or whatever, but I can't. They're mine. I got to use mine. But here's this the other dirty little secret. And you're talking, okay, what if your projections were perfect? Valuation is flawed. No one ta- well, I talk about that. No one really talks about that. Valuation is flawed as anything, but yet we all use you know we slightly, even if I'm not talking about SGPs. I'm talking um, uh, Cole Irvin. We're, you project we project Cole Irvin, uh, uh, Oakland pitcher. You're not going to use half his starts. Yep. You know you're not going to you're going to use him at home. And maybe a road start against Texas or something, but yet when we plug that into our little value box, it comes out with twelve, you know, and and, we're, and therefore we're ranking him as twelve. Where you know you're going to stream him in today's rules, you know, you know, you know hitters too. Uh, so and that's not the only reason. You know, there's other reasons valuation is very flawed. So even if you had the and this speaks in what Ron was talking about with. Um, and what you what we do with our known projections, if you we put them into a dollar value, however rankings, that's that's flawed. Um, and the cool thing, you know, I'll, I'll follow up what Ron was saying as far as the whole roster construct. My favorite part of all the exercises, um, well, we really weren't exercise, you know, uh, of uh, um, the the event was uh, we ran the same league twice, and part of it was to see if anything was, this would happen. So it, you know, if you convert. By flawed valuation um, to dollar values, someone won the league with like like 320 worth. You know, they 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 rostered 320 worth. Somebody else won the league with like 220 dollars worth of, of 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 talent because of the way you they, won every category by one yeah, or yeah, you the, bled the out way, every point, the, wasted the, nothing. Yeah, yep. yeah, the way. So that you know if that that just told me right then and there it's roster construction uh, more than anything um, and. We, I mean, the fact that you have to dump a category in these retro leagues, that's, you know, kind of, you know, you, you're not neither him nor there. Roster construction is is so key. And I think, we, uh, well, actually, you know, when we're, you know, we're going to talk about it was later in this panel. So I won't say what I'm about to say. We'll say it in a little bit. Last uh, part of this topic, I'm curious what you guys think about the, the fact that the game is changing and how playing time is distributed at the team level. Uh, especially on the pitching side where teams like Tampa Bay and uh, Seattle and, and teams like that are being very um, much more unorthodox, shall we say, for now. It's going to end up being orthodox, I expect, in a couple of years, where they're holding down the number of innings that their starters pitch, either by holding them out of starts or by taking them out of games with hard pitch counts and things like that. And as a result, when you get, when you have a year's worth of stats in a situation where a lot of pitchers and quite a few hitters are amassing what stats they amass on a lower base. 
whereas the previous year was 180 innings of 3.9 expected ERA. Now it's 120 innings. Could be the same result, but should we infer as users and as as producers that the change in the way that players are being used in Major League Baseball is creating a, a source of inaccuracy because of decreased model size? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, a smaller, smaller sample size is always going to uh, lead to wider error bars. Um, it's, it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. And, and playing time has always been the, the, the great black hole of, of uh, uh, forecasting that drives all the numbers in the end. Um, I think the only thing I could say about this is, is the way we handle it with uh, the BAB system, the broad assessment uh, balance sheet uh, that um, we use at babsbaseball.com. And, and everything is just projected in, in ranges, even playing time. Uh, we don't try to project that a player is going to have 700 plate appearances. He's either a full-timer, a mid-timer, or a part-timer, or a no-timer. Um, and uh, there's going to be variability within those labels that we put on it. Um, in most cases, uh, you know, mid-timer might be between 250 plate appearances and 400 plate appearances. And uh, given that player's particular role at that given time, he will have some variability within that range, but he will still be in that range. Um, but roles change all the time, too. So it's, you know, injuries are constantly are a big driving factor for a change of roles. And, and we can only do what we can do with this. It's You have a starting point, and then during the season, we just have to react. It's I don't know if there's any other better way to do that. Yeah, I was. You didn't go where I thought you were going to go, so I'm going to use your own data and go there for you. Um, <laughs> and I was going to basically, sort of, gently at least reject or at least press pause on the very premise of the question because Ron's got some data in the introduction to the forecaster that shows that you know focusing on starting pitching for this example, the percentage of overall innings thrown by starting pitchers and the percentage of wins that starting pitchers got actually crept up a little bit in 2022. Wasn't as bad as 20, as 21, wasn't as bad as the short 2020. And I think maybe what we're seeing is that this is all like long tail pandemic effect of minor leaguers, major leaguers not getting their innings totals in and being managed, you know, in the year coming out of the pandemic. But I'm curious to see if those numbers tick up a little bit again. And maybe we've, we're coming out of the bottom of the valley as far as nobody's a starter, nobody's a reliever, no one goes more than four innings, everyone's just a pitcher. Maybe we're not, you know, Tampa's going to Tampa, but, you know, maybe that trend is not catching on quite as widely as we thought. So, you know, that would be a path toward a little bit of normalcy if you're, say, I don't know, John Smoltz railing on this issue all the time. And I actually do feel like he's got an audience and he's, you know, got some... Yeah, you know, I, I think he's being heard, and there's a clamoring in the game to not let you know Tampa being Tampa get multiplied by thirty. And even if some front offices want to, so I'm curious to see where it goes because I feel like you know that was sort of a pandemic emergency, and now that there's a backlash, and Manfred will do anything to avoid backlash. You know, uh, I'm curious where it's going to go. In the in the realm of you know my projections are the best. When this when this first started being talked about, I kind of, it's the, I expected this path. I expected a return 
of of starters to be starters. It may never get you know they're not going to get the seven and two thirds. And you know, I mean, yeah, we're not going back to Juan Marichal, right? No. <laughs> but I, I expected it, and because people, the, the context was, do we need to change our rules? Like, no, because in three years it's going to be what it was anyway, and we don't need to change our rules um, as far as that goes. But my my thing with playing time is we've kind of alluded to a lot of science behind regression, and and there's not a whole lot of science to playing time. You know, a guy had, you know, 600 at-bats, 620, and 610, uh, 613. You know, that, that's – it's kind of that, – but there – so I've done some studies. If, if a guy has 680 or more for three straight years, what are the chances at 680-plus, et cetera, and 200 innings pitch, what are the – after three straight years, what are the chances for the fourth? And they can be applied this way, but if I, if I project Sandy Alcantara for 180 innings – I'm going to, you know, people are going to want their money back. But the fact that he's had 200 innings for three of the past four years, pitchers that have three, 200 innings for three of the past four years get 180 the next year. So there is science behind it. So it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, but I look at it, I'll contest, how can I possibly give him more, you know, fewer than 205 because he's a horse, he's young. Yeah. So you, know, you can do the same with, with batters, with um, over, you know, uh, Marcus Semien, right? So, you know, I mean, he's had what, 700, it's not quite Chris Davis-like, but he's had like 724 for the past two years or something like that. Um, you know, he, 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 which he, actually breaks my model 100% of yeah. playing, playing time is 700. Yeah, and he's I mean, like twice, yeah, three times in four yeah. years. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, you know, do I, you know, but I guess the other, you know, from a fantasy baseball point of view, if you apply the same conservatism to everybody, Everybody, you know, what happens is they condense, but the relative rankings are still the same. Because if I'm going to penalize Alcantara, I need to penalize Nola, I need to penalize them all. And relatively speaking, on your draft rankings list, they're still uh, they're still pretty close. But that's my as a, as a I don't want to say former scientist, but that's my, you know, we put so much effort into the skills, and we don't put as much science into playing time. And I think it's there. But if we were to, we would we wouldn't we would it wouldn't be accepted. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion. I think I'm going to open it to the floor. Does anybody have any questions on this or any other topic? Just um, stick your hand up. You don't get out of here until you ask a question. We've posted guards. Go ahead. The question is about the because of the changing nature of closers, how should people who are figuring their roster build and trying to figure out where to include closers should go to the premium prices for the premium guys? I don't know what you think, uh, Ray. I think a lot depends on you know which format you're talking about. I think there's an answer for a draft and hold a league where you can't make any pickups during the season. I think you want to get you know some guys with pass to saves or maybe even pass to saves right from the start uh, because you can't just go find a closer on the waiver wire or even if you want to pay for them in, in May or June. Uh, but then in a shower league, a 10 or 12 team league, I like to throw a lot of late shots in at people who might be closers, and then I'll just cut the half of them that don't work out and churn from there. And then in the middle of the gra- middle ground there, you have the sort of 15 team with fab where, you, you know, you can, you know the, the conventional wisdom seems to be to, you know, at least get, you know, pay up for one closer and have a foundation and work from there. But it all comes down to, you know, the cop-out answer of, you know, what you're comfortable doing and how you, you know where your strengths are managing in the season if you know if you're if you're really good at picking out 
the closer and it's not a draft and hold league and you can find the closer the week before it comes to clo- becomes the closer in May, steer into that and, you know, de-emphasize things at the draft table, go get more of speed or starting pitchers or whatever because, you know, the way this game works is you can't sort of cover every piece on the board at the draft table. It's just, you know, everyone else is trying to do the same thing and you're going to end up short somewhere. So end up short somewhere that you feel good about your ability to – to, to manage this versus bully that, as Todd would say. In the one addition to that, you don't need to win saves. Okay? You can finish. You need, you, if in, in an overall, you need to compete. I, you know, I think we can all point to a league we've won where we've dumped them. We probably wouldn't want to do it again. But you can win a league dumping saves. wouldn't recommend it. But the point being, um, you don't need to win it. You just want to be competitive and then let the year play out because – all, you know, if you're in the middle of pack, in order to get those other three or four points, it just takes one guy. And you, it's easier to get that one guy to help you in saves or that one guy to help you in steals. One guy is not going to help you as much in home runs. No, he helps you in home runs, RBI, and runs, so he may get it over three categories. But to move in that one category, um, you, you, know, you do not need to win saves. You just need to be competitive, and then you've got 27 weeks to play it out, and then it's just, like, it's very, you know, I won't repeat it, but it's, you know, what, what are you good at? Are you good at finding speculative closers? How much do you need the saves? Because what the, 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 and they did mention this in the pan, one of the other panels, the amount to finish in third and fourth place was alarmingly low. Yep. A couple of people went after say, and this is the same one with stolen bases, the shapes of the category. It's kind of like an S where um, well, it's flat in the middle. Uh, it, you know, steep, then flat, then goes up again. So, uh, if to, to finish what, fourth out of fifteen, you have to pay more in the stolen base categories than you do in the home runs and you do in the RBI. So it's an inefficient use of your money anyway. Um, so there is no more. As you, and you know, you, there's no one answer. Um, and as they were saying yesterday, it's who you pick and not why you pick them. A lot of times, too. Dave Potts said, I think it was in that uh, same session uh, yesterday, he made the point that somebody asked him about uh, basically pocket ace closers. Like, would you go after, if you're on the turn, maybe get Hayter and Hendricks or, you know, Romano and somebody, but top guys and, and use two high picks to get it. And he just said, "No, it's it's just ridiculous because you're buying probably 30 more saves yeah. than you could even, possibly even if it even works, use. It's a waste. Even if yeah. it yeah. worked, and, you and just... Dave was the one that said to give the credit. Now he was the one that said you don't have to win saves. Yeah, you just and, have to be. Dave knows what he's yeah. talking about. <laughs> I mean, last year at this time, we'd be sitting here talking about how it was crazy for uh, Hader and Hendricks to be going in the second round of drafts, um, and it turned out it was crazy because you." You had a 50% uh, fail rate on that. Um, and this year we're going to be faced with the same thing. I mean, Edwin Diaz and um, Classe are going to go in the second round. And maybe they'll hit, maybe they won't. But when uh, someone asks me about that, I always point them to uh, Edwin Diaz's 2019 line and you know show them what the range of possible outcomes are for someone like that. So uh, I think... Uh, going after one of the top closers uh, is is a highly risky move. I think you 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 kind of go down a tier or so and 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 kind of fish in the middle tier. And like I'd mentioned uh, yesterday at the beginning of the session, I mean last year in Tout uh, Tout was American League and National League, uh, the experts 
picked uh, basically in, in auction 35 potential closer sources, saved sources, and spent $443 in auction value for them. And those 35 players returned $65, which is a ROI of 15 cents on a dollar. So, I mean, that's that's what you're faced with, with the, in the closer market. So, uh Risk-averse, risk-averse, risk-averse. Just play it really conservative. I mean, you look at the case of Josh Hader. Ron's talking about you know how early he was going at this time last year and then all through the offseason. Yeah, he got the saves. He also hung up an ERA in like the mid-fives. And everyone is you know back here this week like, oh, yeah, Josh Hader, I'm back in. Sure. And I, I mean, I get it. You know, we understand, you know, we think why the – ERA happened. It was a particularly bad stretch. It wasn't physical related. He still ended the season as dominant as ever. But no one's asking the larger question of why are we, you know, making these kind of investments in assets that are that volatile? You know, if that if five twenty two is within the range of outcomes for an ERA, no, you don't want to spend your second round pick on that. <laughs> and there's an also an element that I've heard talked about in the last three to six months, I guess, listening to other podcasts and reading websites and stuff. And that's the element of opportunity cost, that if you spend a second round draft pick on Josh Hader, you're not spending you're a not second round. You're not getting Bo Bichette or whatever. Getting, yeah. yeah, or Manny Machado or somebody yeah. that actually is more valuable to you because he helps you across more broadly right. across and the prob- category. And probably doesn't have the same volatility. And it definitely doesn't have the same risk, for sure, yeah. And I think that's something, the idea of roster construction that came up a few moments ago, that's that's really what I think is going to separate the winners from the losers in the in the next four or five years of, of fantasy baseball. It already is, to a large extent. But you hear the in the hallways when people are talking, the topic is not, what are we going to do about closers? And the topic is not, who's worth what? The topic is about roster builds. They're always talking, they're using that word. What kind of roster build are you planning? And, and then they discuss how to execute that roster build plan. And, and that's a separate thing that starts to look at which players do you want to, if you're going if you're going ace-ace starting pitcher at the, at the top, which is a justifiable strategy, as uh, Dave Potts said, if the two pitchers work out. You know, it all depends on which players you actually end up getting to execute the strategy. And that's, I think that's really accurate. And I, I noticed that these really sharp players who succeed in a lot of high-dollar contests and big uh, expert-level contests are really focusing a lot more attention on how to build a roster and to make that plan rather than focusing on the individual players until after they have the plan figured out. Yeah, and there's room for both. There's room for, you know, as the offseason goes on, you might decide you've got your favorite targets that, you know, I I love getting player X in round 12, and that's going to cover my third baseman. Therefore, I'm not you know, I, I'm going to do something other than Manny Machado in the second round because, sure. you know, the guy in round 12 is the guy I want. But you're right. They, you know, that's not mutually exclusive with an overall build plan. So, you know, and a lot of times, you know, one, you know, feeds, to, feeds into the other and everything coalesces. And that's, you know, how you're attacking your drafts. But, you know, you know, e- even for most of the people walking around here and talking in the hallways, it is November and plans are, you know, written in pencil or those who I haven't drafted yet, but those people who have drafted yet are, you know, very much, I think, in the trying things out mode and, you know, coming back and reporting what they think worked and what didn't as everyone tries to, you know, sharpen up those plans as the offseason goes on. So this may, Patrick and I talked a little about this last night. We may talk about it to, to wrap up the panel, but this segues into what I wasn't going to say before, so now I'll bring it up now. Um, 
and it talks it, it it folds into what we've talked about uh, a lot so far today as far as rankings and, and projections how perfect they are and what useful they are but as far as roster build goes um i don't i mean maybe you can argue that your first pick is you know it's it's wrong you can make a right or wrong first pick but after that there you don't there's no right second pick there are five or six different players that are right they just send you in different directions and different builds and different constructs um, and the reason I learned this was doing a draft with Derek Van Riper from The Athletic. I don't partner except with DVR during this one draft. At least now I used to partner with Lar Michaels, et cetera. But I would not have gone down the road of looking at some of these players, had, and he wouldn't have looked at some of the guys that I put out there. And we'd go back and forth and would discuss them. And, you know, when you, when you partner, how do you decide who, who, who takes the player? Well, I don't think that there's a wrong, you know, I don't, and anytime that, if we didn't agree on the guy, let's take your guy, because it's not a wrong, it's just, now we're in a different direction, and now I have to the next pick to figure out who fits that direction, or, you know, so I don't think, and that speaks towards projection accuracy, too. Uh, It's not so much a 27 versus 29 homer guy, it's, do you want the, you know, do you want a pitcher there, do you want a a guy that, you know, power speed, and what do you, what do you, what kind of player do you want, as opposed to, well, I want the guy that hits 29 homers, not 27. Um, so, but I, you know, that's, that's what I learned it's, it's, you know, as far as the roster construction goes is there's, you know, I, can you argue that, you know, when you pick first, maybe there is a right answer because you can use, and then I don't know. I, this year, I don't think you can argue. This year, there's, there's several players that can go first. Um, but um, it's interesting as far as that. I mean, that brings up a whole partner discussion. But um, I, it just, it was, for me, I enjoyed working with a guy. Um, I don't know that I would do it. If it was a you know, tout war, I could never have a partner in tout wars, something like that, where it, it has to be me. But I thought it was a great experience. Um, it helps when it's a friend and that sort of thing. When you talk about the every pick, every player you buy changing your direction, I overheard you talking about this at the end last night. I didn't get to pa- pass along this piece of info, but when it, when you write this up into a theory or a article or whatever it is, you have to call it the Plinko thing. The what? The- Plinko from Price is Right with you know, picking off the balls all coming down to the bottom. It's kind of what it is, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how you and how, how you and Wynn do it, but I, I mean, um, I think you, you know, there, there has to be some sort of an agreement as far as where you go, but um, DVNR happened to win this particular league last year without getting any saves was not by design. Uh, the team is called the Athletic and the Non-Athletic. I'll let you guys. I'll let you guys figure out uh, who is who, but um, but anyway. The question, just to repeat, is how has the proliferation of NFBC and its increasing influence in the industry, plus DFS, and I probably you could throw in gambling as well, just regular uh, wagering, affecting how we cover the the industry that we cover. All right, because um, I, I can come at this from a couple of different angles, because I also work for ESPN. For every NFBC player. There's over th- there's probably five thousand that can't spell NFBC. The, the point being, we're very NFB centric here because who's going to come here? Half the people here are going to are in leagues, so we have to for our business we have to focus on it, get our projections out now because there's NFBC leagues going on now. What we have to keep in mind in general as a business, if you only cater to that group, you're catering to a very small group. And not only that, seventy percent of people play head-to-head points leagues. 
So I'm not saying that we should go run back, talk to you know, talk to Brent and change your entire process. No, totally. But because uh, we usually cater them to the so is in, in general, we have to keep that in mind before we even approach the question. But as Ray alluded to with the gambling, um, that it is heading towards more of a DFS gambling mentality. Um, you know, when we write our fantasy daily notes for ESPN, we now include gambling odds with it. And, and you know, if, if I feel a guy's going to strike at a lot of guys with DFS, it carries over to bet the over things, things like that. Um, but um, that brings up who is actually going to pay you money for the information. So that's where you you still have to go down that road. But I just want to point out that um, you know what if if Tristan and or Scott Pianowski from Yahoo or Scott White from CBS were answering the question, they may have a different point of view because they're dealing with a different audience. Yeah, Eric made a comment today about uh, you know in the fact of food panel about the catchers and talking about you know mm-hmm. the one the one catcher leagues and he would you know just always you know, pick his catcher in the last round, which is an entirely valid strategy in that. But to me, one catcher leagues are, you know, might as well be on another planet. It's just not the not the world I live in. But, um, you know, we also have, you know, Todd's point about where the, you know, the, the fat part of the market is, is exactly right. We've got a, what I think is a killer new tool for playing time that we're going to roll out sometime this uh, offseason uh, came in from our research team that's going to, I think, really revolutionize how we represent playing time and the thing I'm most excited about is the fact that it looks at everything on a week-to-week basis and just dovetails perfectly with that massive head-to-head audience and I think you make a mistake in the in the industry just like Todd said if you cater to this vocal NFBC crowd and not the um not where the which does not necessarily reflect where the masses are so I'm happy to have a uh, you know something new coming that is uh more geared toward the masses because the NFBC sucks plenty of oxygen as it is, as much as much as I feed that. I, I dabble in DFS, but I'm I'm not upset that they're around because if that helps companies still be able to pay me, you know, selfishly, that's fine. I have dabbled a little bit into the NFT Serrari game. First of all, because I was asked to write about it, and but um, so I'm, I am trying to get into these other. Now things. you're saying something I can't spell. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I think it's it, you know coverage-wise, we get backseated a little bit, but you know to the gambling and you know stuff like that. But again, if it's paying the bills and that, you know, I, I think it's it's not a bad thing. I think there'll always there always will be people to play our game. Uh, and we're finding out with so many younger people still coming here that the rotisserie's not going anywhere. Totally. We're never going to be replaced. Might be. I mean, I think you – I'm not by no means an industry analyst in this space, but I think it's not a coincidence that you're seeing the DFS providers becoming gambling providers because I think gambling is a threat to DFS. Like DFS may be like – the AOL of internet adoption, right? It was huge, and then better things came along, and you know the foothold got wiped out. So DraftKings and FanDuel are you know positioning themselves to be covered in case of that eventuality by taking over the gambling space themselves. But as Todd said, I am fully confident that all variations of our full season game will continue to you know to exist. However, those things sort out. You know, I watch with popcorn as an interested observer. Basically, I'll. Whoever, whoever emerges standing at the end will be there. 
I have a uh, conspiracy theory about that. I, I think that um, it's possible that when the gambling industry decided it wanted to really push into become legalized, I think that the uh, they might have seen DFS, like DraftKings and FanDuel themselves, might have seen this as a pathway to get acceptability okay, in the so legislatures, and then well, get was it Ron for for wax dessert topping? That was the yeah. I mean, that's no concern uh, conspiracy theory. That's exactly what happened. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened. DFS is gambling, as far as most people who are being honest about it will yes. say. It's well, too short of run. Funny to... they got honest about that the minute they didn't have to not be honest about it because. Hey. Of the uh, law that said the DFS, they were hiding behind the carve out of, yeah. uh, of, of uh, from from the gambling laws, and then as soon as the minute that got revealed, they're like, "Oh, it's totally gambling." There is so much. There's so much that's happened over the last 25, 30 years that have led us to this day. From from the point where the um, uh, the uh, FSTA was holding their conferences in Las Vegas, you know, and waving the flag that we're not gambling, we're not gambling. But we're going to have our conference in Las Vegas in March when there's spring training games in Florida and Arizona. But no, we're going to have our conference in Las Vegas. I mean, from there to... Um, By the way, what's the name of the FSTA now? The, the, the yep, Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association. Not gambling, but gaming association. And, and to be honest, no disrespect to the association because they've done some amazing things um, to keep us employed and keep this game legal. But um, if just plotting the history of this industry, uh, anybody 20 years ago could have seen what was coming today based upon just small little signs along the way. And, and so here we are. I mean, it's, uh, it was just a matter of time. But, you know, like you said, well, season-long fantasy is not going away. Uh, perhaps the marketplace is not as big as it could have been or it was in the past or it, the growth may have slowed, but there's always going to be a market of this for this type of game. And it's, it's our job basically to figure out how to, uh, how to market it in such a way that it provides the, the greatest enjoyment to the people who play it. And if, if it's a 4 by 4 classic game from 1984, then we market that. If it's a... Uh, a week-long game or a month-long game or a daily game. I mean, there are so many variations to this uh, that are, are possible in, in playing fantasy sports that we just have to figure out what the market wants and we we just uh, provide them what they want. I mean, that's that's how an industry survives and that's what we've been, we've been doing for 40 years and we'll continue to do with or without the influence of, of gambling. Um, I think we'll be here 40 years from now. It will look different, but we'll still be wondering whether Wander Franco's grandson is going to make it to the uh, – to the Las Vegas uh, Mariners uh, opening lineup next year. <laughs> yes. So the question is, auctions are in decline, but is there a chance that the technology will lead to a uh, resurgence? It allowed us to do tout wars for the past three years. We've had, to, we've had to do it remotely because of the pandemic and the lockout, et cetera. I don't know the numbers to be able to say if you're, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're intuition. So I don't know the numbers as far as of their more or less auctions. Um, you lose the, and I think Ron can speak more to this because we've talked about it just more, you know, more, you know, as a friend, as, as opposed to industry guys, you lose that hometown feel, you know, the in-person aspect of it, which makes them even better. You know, then, 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 you know, let let Ron, let Ron speak towards that. 
Uh, but I do think the technology is helping the auction industry for sure. We're talking high stakes. They've got a really nice auction room. We're able to have online auctions, so they're able to add that to their competition. I mean, who's to say the best fantasy baseball player in the world is the guy that can master 15-team mixed drafts? You know, I want to see the guy that continually wins a 15-team mixed auction league. That's to me, that's a better player. You know, I'm saying it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but not totally. Uh, but I'll let Ron uh, talk a little bit towards the, the what he missed, you know, about the tout wars and what we missed the past couple of years. Yeah, well, um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, we, we had online capability to do uh, drafts and nobody would even touch going onto an auction website. I mean, we wouldn't even go there. We just it away. Now we've got some really workable options, and I think the technology will get better. Um, but we're not there yet. I mean, we we have did conduct the Tout Wars au- uh, auctions online the last few years, and um, to be honest, I hated it. Um, you uh, first of all, you can click the button that says plus one, but if three other people are doing it at the same time, you've just added four dollars to your bid. I hate that. Um, but but more than that, I mean, fantasy sports was, was designed as a social game. I mean, we're supposed to be in a room together and trash talking and watching the tells and, and everything else. And you do that online, you just lose that. And it's such a crucial part of, of the draft experience. Um, what we need to do is we need to have an auction, an online auction uh, vehicle that combines the Zoom element. So yeah. they're, we're, we're all facing each other and we're looking at each other and, and um, a little box with our faces on it and it lights up when we're placing a bid and it locks out the other people. And I mean, it's there. I'm sure somebody can program that and you do know, that. You know, this is actually groundbreaking because this is the first valid use case for the metaverse I've ever heard. <laughs> yes, somebody call Jeff's up. Totally. Whatever his name is. They're, they're, they're building all this technology. You know, Zuckerberg's putting seventeen bazillion dollars into it, and has never been able to say what you'll be able to do with it. We just found it. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a fairly narrow market. To, no, to, no, to no, recover. no, no, it's not football. Football is going to embrace this. Football is going to embrace this. And then what will happen is that the major media sites will see how successful it is with football and will say, oh, maybe we should re- uh, re-engineer this for baseball. And then we're clicking on the things to pick our catchers and kickers show up or something like that. It's just, uh, yeah, they'll do football first. And football will be very successful with it. And then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll have to bastardize it yeah, to make baseball yeah, work. That's it's what happens. The human element, uh, you know, you don't get that online. I mean, to, to quote our friend Joe Sheehan, he would say, I, I never want to win AL Tout Wars. I want to leave the auction with the best joke. You know, that was <laughs> and he often did, to, yeah. to give him his due. Yeah. And he was successful. So. I wonder if the, if the situation will come full circle as we, we had fantasy baseball drive towards gambling. But one of the things about gambling that we all know is everybody loses, except for some small handful of roughly – of lucky guys rather than their skill. And some guys win by skill. And I understand that, but most everybody loses. That's how they build the palaces in Las Vegas and everywhere else where they do gambling. And I wonder if as like gambling is a young person's activity, I think. And as people get older and they realize they enjoy the aspect of looking over the stats and making picks and making selections. I wonder if as they get into their late thirties and forties, maybe start families and stuff like that. And they realize I can't blow a hundred dollars a week on a DFS or, or placing bets on games, but I enjoyed 
testing my acumen against other people. And ideally, it would be people in your social circle. But increasingly, the the online world allows us to to create those communities of like like-minded people and go out and compete with them. And I I, I hope. I can see 10 years down the road that the, the games that we like to play will have a resurgence because people will get tired of losing money in, in casinos. Yeah, but I mean, Ron's run into this. He kind of alluded to his monthly games. It's still tough, online friends, whatever, to commit people to a six-month grind of fantasy baseball. We still have to figure out a way um, to – make that a more enjoyable experience. Whether it's monthly leagues, whether you do redrafts in the between, we've got to figure out a way. I mean, we love, we, you know, we, we, you know, we wish, we, we hope for that 163rd game because we want as many games as possible, but we're in the minority. Yeah, there's got to be a middle ground between 163 games <laughs> over six months and betting the under on the first five innings, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it could be something like what Ron tried uh, yeah, that, a number yeah. of years ago where you say we're going to break it up into smaller components and maybe draft every month but the prize will go to the guy who does the best at the end of all the incremental time periods right. so that gives you the the buzz of of redrafting and picking new guys and all that but the the satisfaction of winning a long term thing cuz it i think it does t- if you're in it to prove your skill then that's i think that's the way to go there's right? a there's a football league they call it the guillotine where um it's kind of like after a certain amount of the season the lower ranked teams are out, but their players are put in back into the player pool, so the teams that are still in it get to draft amongst the play. You know, and there's still good players on teams that are gone, so maybe you know maybe that's a a way to. I mean, you know, Juan Soto's team or you know, Ronald Acuna's team didn't do so good because their pitching wasn't very good, but now you can pick up Ronald Acuna for the next two months or whatever the thing may be. Maybe that's a way to increase it. I always uh, wondered why the cut line leagues didn't do that. Well, that's well. They, they, the it's it's an NFBC and well. Oh, I know it's football, yeah. but um, yeah, I don't. You know, I just to me that's. I mean, part of it is like you know, I I don't like it, but part of it's like wow, that's you know, I don't want to have that for every one of my leagues, but that sounds like fun though. Yeah, we need innovation uh, to use a sorely overused business watchword, but somebody's going to come up with a really attractive, interesting game on probably in an online platform that works really well and is smooth and and engaging. I think that there's I think there's room for the industry, you know, it just depends on especially the younger people here to to figure out what it is cuz uh, I mean Yeah, I mean if you look at the relationship the uh, between gambling outfits and the sports leagues and clearly they're all in bed together at this point. You, it's obvious what's in it for the gambling companies, right? They're the ones who are going to be taking in the money. But from the league's perspective, they clearly see it as a path to increasing engagement, right? So if engagement increases, then sure, back to your the central point of your question, that's a bigger audience for our games or some future variation of our games. And now that we don't have this fig leaf that gambling and fantasy sports are different things anymore, now it's just a continuum of, you know, these are the people coming in the door. And, M- and, and MLB clearly thinks that it's going to bring more people in the door. So that's a pipeline for somebody to go out and come up with product offerings that are closer to our games than to betting the first five innings under. You can do that? So I hear. <laughs> so I hear, yeah. <laughs> well, all right. I think we're out of time. We have uh, events that we have to get to here at First Pitch Arizona. So first, I'd like to thank we have uh, 15 people or so here, 20 people. Thanks very much for coming out. 15, that's what I meant. Thanks very much. We do appreciate it.
Also want to thank our panelists here, Todd Zola, Ray Murphy, and Ron Chandler. Especially, it's nice that Ron could make it out here because uh, I know I admire what Ron has done in this business, and I know I'm speaking for Todd and Ray as well. It's like a... It's like being with a giant of of the business that we like to to be in, and so it's really, really very grateful to you for for coming out. That's going to be our show. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio will be taking a little hiatus now. We might come back in December after the uh, winter meetings if something happens. We're not just going to do it just to say, hey, the winter meetings are over. And then uh, pitchers and catchers is usually when we get Baseball HQ Radio back up and going, and we'll get into that in 2023. I hope you'll all keep listening. Thanks again for coming out here to First Pitch Arizona. And this is Patrick David saying so long for now, and we'll talk to you soon. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, November 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 39 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest experts for this special Live from First Pitch Arizona edition, Todd Zola from Rotowire, ESPN, Masters Ball, and SiriusXM, Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com, and our very special guest, Ron Chandler, the founder of Baseball HQ and now the operator of BabsBaseball.com. I don't have to tell you about these guys' expertise, but let me quickly also say how much fun it is to talk with them about fantasy baseball and off the air about a lot of other stuff as well. They're just great people and great fantasy analysts. I'm Patrick Abbott, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again in the new year with a brand new season of Baseball HQ Radio. It's a little early for us to set any specific dates, but I can say that we will have a special winter meetings edition, if anything interesting actually happens at the winter meetings, Otherwise, we usually get the ball rolling right around pitchers and catchers in mid-February. Enjoy the off-season, have a great holiday season, and we'll be back next season on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again in 2023, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.